Do any of you watch TV? I figure that most of you do. And there's a commercial that has been on a lot in recent months. And uh, maybe you've seen it. I'll put a, a picture here. This is one of them. Um, this is Kyle. And Kyle tells his story. He, he's, uh, it's a commercial for what is known as Ancestry DNA. And it's, you know, it's very popular right now to research where you come from and your background, family history. And uh, in recent days, they've taken it a step further where you can actually send in a sample of your DNA and they will test it. And from that data, be able to determine where you come from and where your lineage and your background is from. And uh, the, the, the story is, in these commercials, is a lot of times people are convinced they know their story and, and know what their ancestry is. But that isn't always the case. A lot of times it's not true or it's unfounded or it's based in recent history of what they've been told and what the thing is with ancestry DNA is you can discover maybe you're not actually who you thought you were. And, and in, in Kyle's case, you've maybe heard this, he, he says, I've always been told I'm German and that our family is German. And we, he, he says, I've learned uh, even since a kid, uh, wearing lederhosen and dancing German dances. And he says, and then I sent in my DNA to ancestry DNA and it came back and I discovered I wasn't actually German at all. I was actually Scottish. It says, so I traded in my lederhosen for a kilt. I love that. It's just, can you imagine finding out what you thought about yourself is very different than who you actually are? And, and I, I asked that question today because uh, I wonder if we were to say this, what is our spiritual DNA as a people of God living at this time in this place, being part of this community being part of this congregation and this church and school, what does our spiritual DNA look like? I share that because I've heard from people in recent days, so, you know, this is what our congregation always does when we go into major initiatives and, and then it goes south because something doesn't work out or staff members leave. I've heard that from people and it breaks my heart to hear that. But or, or say, you know what, we can't go into something this big. We've been through too much, and it's not a time to do something like that. We've heard a little of that, and we get that. And, and Paul's words, you know, do not, not be anxious and everything, but by everything in prayer and petition, offer your requests to God. You know, praying to God in all circumstances. Lord, what would you have us do at such a time such as this? Ancestry is important in knowing where you, where you come from and what you come from. Um, we've done some research in recent days, and I'll put a, another picture. You're going to get a, a pretty neat piece this week. It's going to be mailed out to every church and school family. Uh, we'll have extra copies available next week, too, if, if you don't get one. Um, but this, this piece is going to share uh, our history and, and, and to see the spiritual DNA that makes St. John Lutheran Church and School what it is and some of the key major ministry events and how God moved by his faithfulness in writing our story in our history. And it's, it's just fascinating. Um, for instance, like on the, the beginning of a timeline, you see that picture, that house on the left-hand side. Um, back in 1918 or so, there were several families that started meeting regularly for prayer and Bible study and fellowship in that house on Dre Street, which is right back behind the Dairy Queen uh, downtown Rochester here, and they started meeting and, and coming together, and, and in 1920, 
God led them prayerfully, they decided to start a congregation that would become known as St. John Lutheran Church. And, and what a big moment that must have been. And, and in fact, it was fascinating to me um, to read a little more about these families and to discover that they were Norwegian Scandinavians that migrated here from Minnesota. Vikings in their background. Fascinating. I'm totally kidding. They aren't Scandinavian and they weren't Vikings. Um, but they were German. And, and, and to see that in those early days, they were speaking German, they were praying in German, they were reading in German, and, and as they started to worship together, they worshiped in German. And that, that changed really not until 1935, I'm sorry, before that, 1928 is when that shift from German into English started to happen as the children were speaking more and more English and they weren't understanding German as much, so they started going every other weekend, German English, German English is how they did that, and uh, how radical, right? <laughs> and, uh, uh, but to just get a grasp of that, what was going on in their lives? Um, to be led by God to start a congregation. I mean, what if they hadn't? What if they said, you know what, let's just keep meeting in the house, this is, this is good enough, just six families, this, this, is, this is all that matters, because, you know, after all, we know the truth about Jesus, and what if they just kept it to themselves? We're adding this up. Since then, over 4,000 people have been baptized into the faith through the ministry of this congregation. Think about that. 4,000 people. In fact, this week, we invite you to come back and, and stop in midweek and into next weekend. In the atrium, there are going to be 4,000 reminders of how many people that is that have been touched through the gospel of Jesus and the working of the washing of the water in the word and God's powerful gospel message over them. And to realize, like even in, in 1942, there was a weekend where there were uh, 20-some people baptized on one Sunday. And, and just to run the math on that, uh, in terms of the size of the congregation then compared to where we are today, we would be baptizing over 200 people on one weekend to compare with what that must have been like. I mean, imagine that. God's powerful moving among them, uh, making an impact for the future. As God was writing a, a legacy through them, bringing them together as one, and, and writing a story that would be a legacy for future generations like you and me, to be part of what God is doing at such a time as this. Uh, it, it just gives me goosebumps thinking about what God has done among his people in years past, and that's just a couple of stories. We'll learn more about them as we go. But I share all that by way of, you know, that's not our only thing that defines our DNA, the beginnings back to 1920 or so. We have a spiritual DNA that far outdates that, going way, way back to the very beginnings of what God has been doing in his church throughout the centuries. And, and, and you think about that all the way back to Adam and Eve, and then you fast forward. I'm not going to start from there today, but I'll say this. You know, as you fast forward through the history of God's people throughout the, the scriptures, and you, you see this dialogue of, of, of God's faithfulness and God's promises and God's people celebrating those promises and, and then God's people doubting and God's people rebelling and God's people getting into selfishness and turning from God and God saying, well, then have it your way and then God's faithfulness intervening to remind them that they are still loved. And God's forgiveness and grace and renewal and, and God's people celebrating that and then failing and falling away. And you've got this 
this, this ongoing story, this legacy, and over it all, overarching it all is God's faithfulness in Jesus and a plan for what he would do with his chosen people for the future. That should give you goosebumps too. There's a time in that history where God had been telling his people about the promised land and they were longing for that as he released them from slavery in Egypt and, and led them through uh, the, the wilderness and through rebellion, God, of course, said, okay, another 40 years of wandering. They could have got there a lot sooner. <laughs> but they bellyached and they complained and they said, well, it was much better before. Or they, they started to say, well, we like being in slavery better. And, and God said, okay, wander, wander away. And 40 years go by. And finally, it comes time to enter into the promised land and God's promises that are coming true. And Joshua and, and those promises, do not, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Probably with you wherever you go. And Joshua leading the people in and the conquest of Cana and the land flowing with milk and honey. And you, you fast forward and, and they're settling in that promised land. And the, the, the tribes of Israel and, and each allotted their properties and their land. And, and as it's played out, as God's faithfulness is shown through his people. And, and of course, then the time of the judges shows up. And then you move from the judges and the people say, but we want a king. We, we want to be like other nations. And, and God gives them a king. And then time comes the divided kingdom of the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And you fast forward in the northern kingdom that's filled with evil kings that have nothing or don't want nothing to do with God. In the southern kingdom of Judah where it seemed like every other king knew what, who God was and had a desire to turn his people in that direction. And, and this back and forth play out. And yet in the midst of it, God's warnings and also God's promises playing out to his people. And finally in a days of, of rebellion, God's saying, repent, turn back, lest you be taken away captive. And at that time, God's people didn't repent. Um, some key dates. I want to show you some key dates. We get to 722 B.C. And, and something very significant happens. In the northern kingdom of Israel, they are captured by the Assyrians who take them away, capture their land and control it. Uh, a rough moment in the history of God's people in the northern kingdom. But then, uh, sometime later in 586 B.C., another key date, some of you know this one. Jerusalem is sacked by Babylon. The Babylonians come and, and, and destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple of God. They destroy the walls of Jerusalem. And they take God's people away in the captivity, what's known as the Babylonian captivity. A very, very low point in the history of God and our legacy of faith. And you think of some of the things that happened during those days. Daniel writes about those days in captivity as some of the other prophets talk about that. But you fast forward through time. And, and even in those days, as Jeremiah makes this incredible prophecy that a day would come where a king by the name of Cyrus would form an edict that would bring the possibility of people coming back to Jerusalem. And, and this seemed ridiculously strange because no one knew who Cyrus was, uh, who's Cyrus, and yet this prophetic promise that God said, I will fulfill my promise. I will lead you back. The problem was, who's Cyrus? Well, imagine this. The Babylonian Empire is later attacked by the Persian Empire that conquers Babylon. And in those days, a king is raised up 
among the Persians by the name of Cyrus. How cool is that? God who holds faithful to his promise to his people. And and Cyrus issues a decree, and this begins a a time, and you see the next slide here where um, in uh, 538 B.C., Zerubbabel, this, we, we learn this from Ezra, writes about this in the book of Ezra. Zerubbabel leads the first wave of returning Jews back to Jerusalem. It's sometime later after that, Ezra, um, in 558 B.C., Ezra the priest leads the second wave. Whoops, those dates aren't quite right. I see that. Oh yeah, it is. That is correct. But less than 100 years later, Ezra the priest leads the second wave of returnees. And they start building the temple and and that's an incredible moment in the, in the history of God's people. But then you get to the time much later, really. You think about a generation later in, in our timing. I mean, this doesn't happen quickly, does it? In 432 B.C., Nehemiah's request to Artaxerxes uh, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. And uh, with that in mind, by way of introduction, I'd like to open to Nehemiah with you. If you turn to that in your worship Bible, we're going to spend just a few moments here. Uh, Nehemiah, and you can use the table of contents, find a page number, I'm good with that. Um, But we turn to Nehemiah, and uh, chapter 1, and context here is, here's Nehemiah, who has been given this position. He is a Jew, uh, but through his time in in living now in the Persian Empire, as one who has been living still out of his homeland, as one in exile, a generation later. He's found himself in a really posh position, you might say. If there was a, a position or a place of authority that you'd want, he has a pretty good one. He's working for the king, King Artaxerxes, and we learned he's actually the cupbearer to the king. Um, cupbearers had this purpose. They were kind of the right-hand man, almost like a, a chief of staff among the king's high leadership. And, and one of their responsibilities would be if, if wine was served to the king, he would have the cupbearer, chief of staff, take a drink first to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So you'd have to be highly trusted in order to have that position, as Nehemiah was. And we find out Nehemiah is uh, there, and I get to, uh, to chapter 1, really verse 2. He, he talks, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the other men. They, they come from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah questions them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So he's talking about those, not only were they still there, but those who have returned in, in recent waves over, over those, those recent decades. And they re- respond to him. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. I want to pause there because how, how Nehemiah responds to this is going to be significant. Uh, you know, there's one side of it is, I mean, certainly Nehemiah was dealing with a lot of trouble, a lot of difficult issues in his day. There were certainly political issues. There were certainly family issues. There were other issues that were part of his life. And, and you might say, man, here's a guy who's very busy, very successful, um, and, and he asked this question about those in Jerusalem. He's, you know, how is he going to respond? Notice how he responds. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. 
And before we get into his prayer, which praise God, this is recorded. His reaction is he wept. He is deeply moved by the situation. His eyes are open to the plight of his people, to the challenges before them, to those who are broken and hurting. And Nehemiah weeps, and he fasts, and he prays. You've probably heard it many times that when, when the question comes up, what's the opposite of love? And a lot of times we respond, well, of course, it's, it's hate, right? Hate is the opposite of love. And I've been uh, thoroughly convinced over the years that's actually not true. Uh, the opposite of love is indifference. Indifference is truly the opposite of love because indifference just leads us to say, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Hate can be very passionate. There can be such thing as righteous anger. But indifference just leads us to go, okay. And I, I, you know, I see that play out in so many lives, maybe in our own, where we really are indifferent to the things that really matter. And why is that? Well, I, I don't think it's an intentional thing. It's just because we're busy. Our minds are, are, are just overdriving all through the day and often all through the night over where we got to be, what we got to do, our family circumstances, maybe our health, uh, maybe it's our job, maybe it's taking care of who knows what, and, and we're overwhelmed with stress and busyness, trying to manage it all. And often we can become indifferent to the things that really matter, that God puts in our lives. I love how Nehemiah shows us what it can look like to be moved from not indifference, but to be moved toward love. He is broken for his people. Broken for the circumstances of the walls that have fallen apart. Broken for what could be and what God's desire is for his people. Now here he prays, it says. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Do you hear that recollection? Because Nehemiah knows the history of his people. He knows how God has been faithful again and again. It's part of their spiritual DNA. They've been defined and redefined again and again by God's faithfulness. And he reminds God of that. He says, let your ear be attentive. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself, and my father's house have committed against you. So he comes to the Lord in humility. He's not confessing everybody else's sins. Man, that's easy, isn't it? Always to point out everybody else's wrongs. No, he takes ownership. He says, I've been unfaithful, Lord God. And it comes from that place of humility. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for, your, for my name. Now, in this case, he's referring to Jerusalem. And, and, and for us, we can fast forward in this and see the spiritual Jerusalem that God is forming among his people. And in fact, many scholars see in Nehemiah uh, this incredible uh, foreshadowing of what Jesus would do among his people, us, as he would enter into the brokenness of humanity and come and rescue us where? In Jerusalem, where he'd die on a cross, sacrificially for the sins of humanity. 
where Jesus would be that one who spends time praying, Lord, what would you have us do again and again? And Lord, not my will, but your will be done. People see in Nehemiah this really foreshadowing of who our Savior would do and what he would be about. Now he prays this prayer and and then goes on. He says, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant, he's talking about himself, success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And he's speaking of King Artaxerxes. In fact, we get to chapter 2 just to summarize it. With that prayer and more prayer as Nehemiah goes before the king, he makes a bold request because the king notices he's, he's very broken in heart. He can read it on his face. He says, this is sorrow unlike any sorrow I've ever seen on your face, Nehemiah. What is wrong? And that's where he shares uh, the challenge, the dilemma, the, the circumstance that's breaking his heart. And that's when Nehemiah asked the king, will you allow me to go to Jerusalem and help my people? And while you're at it, we, you send uh, letters that will help me get there safely. And, and king, would you provide some of the provisions we're going to need to rebuild? Pretty bold ask, right? And the king says, do you know what the king said? He said, yes. I, I thought you'd maybe respond and say, he said yes, right? And, and let's try it. He said, yeah, he did. I mean, this is a big deal. And this... It's one of those moments where you say, God already answered a prayer in the life of Nehemiah, and yet it's an impossible situation. As Nehemiah gets there, and we're going to hear more about this next week, is how in the world is God ever going to prevail to rebuild this thing? It is a mess. There's no way. And yet we're reminded with God all things are possible. Kind of reminds us today of our spiritual DNA, of a God who is very much alive and well among us and in our history. Let's be reminded of that today. But there's something stirring in me that told me, and I think the Lord had something to do with it, was stirring in me that I didn't really belong there. So I said to the superintendent, I said, I'd like to uh, see if you could get a new position for me. Now, he could have sent me to a lot of places, established schools, whatnot all. But he said, I've got a place in Rochester. I said, where is Rochester? The first school I went to was uh, Gethsemane Lutheran Church out of Auburn near DeQuinder. That, uh, they would move the pews out during the day and then uh, we'd put the seats for the kids in there and, uh, and Mr. Swincher was the teacher. He was the janitor and the bus driver. He did everything. Being in the barn school was, uh, was really an improvement to us because you know, we had been in schools that were, you know, just makeshift. The pastor that was here, we went out looking for youngsters for the school, and after we got back, he said, well, it looks like this is going to be a one-room school for a long time. 
You know, in remembering back, it was a small school and we, I don't know exactly how many children there were to be honest with you, but it was typically about six, seven, eight in a grade, so. We began to operate and uh, we got a new pastor and that was a blessing from the Lord. It was Pastor Walter Gherkin who was a chaplain in the Philippines in World War II. And you know, many people don't realize it, but he was a visionary. Many people don't realize that for probably six, eight years, we broadcast our service every Sunday on WPON Pontiac. People began to take notice that number one, the children loved their school. They were accomplishing something and it began to grow so that after I think it was four years, we had three, four teachers. So it, it, it was the Lord's hand that, 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 that moved people to bring their children to our school. And today when I think about 300 or more, it, it, it's absolutely amazing. Without his help, it wouldn't grow. And he's got his hand there. I look back at what we were. We were, it looked like an impossible situation. Well, the Lord stepped in and I guess showed that he's, that he's in control and that we are in control and blessed us beyond what we had envisioned. Sure, we have a legacy and the legacy is the Lord's work. Uh, if we pitch in and help him along, it's amazing what he does for us. Without him, nothing would happen. Mm -hmm.